You are listening to the Journal of Rheumatology's Editor's Picks with Dr. Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief. Hello again, this is Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Rheumatology, welcoming you to the February 2022 edition of Editor's Picks. I want to thank you for having taken the time to listen to this podcast. This month, we will begin with doctors James Rosenbaum, John Ravel, and Kevin Winthrop, giving us an overview of their paper entitled, The Interplay Between COVID-19 and Spondoarthritis or Its Treatment. Well, first of all, Earl, let me thank you for selecting our article and, and highlighting it. We're very grateful for that. I think there there are two reasons why we did the study on spondylitis. One is very practical, and that is the idea was born during a board meeting of the Spondylitis Association of America in March 2020. So naturally, we were going to focus on spondylitis. But, But the other reason is equally important, and that is every disease may affect the susceptibility or the severity of COVID by itself. A good example is rheumatoid arthritis. If you have interstitial lung disease, clearly that could have a profound effect on how the the virus behaves, the COVID virus. So spondylitis may or may not be different from other rheumatic diseases. And it's clearly important to study it specifically. And, And the range of medications used to treat spondylitis overlaps with other rheumatic diseases, but there are differences as well, such as the use of sulfasalazine. The, uh, another thing, I'm, if I might add, is by focusing on spinal arthritis, I mean, each one of these rheumatic diseases has a different pathogenesis and a different activation of the immune system. So you're getting a lot of background noise as far as and if that affects your power in, in being able to study these things. So by focusing on one disease, you more or less get a homogeneous background and it, it, it better allows you to focus on specific effects of that disease. And it certainly increases your power of your conclusions. I think many of us believe that methotrexate behaves differently in psoriasis in terms of side effects compared to spondylitis. We don't use it so much in spondylitis, but compared to, say, rheumatoid arthritis. And other medications aren't effective at all, like like Ectemera, like the IL-6 blockers. Kevin, you want to add anything? Uh, No, they they covered it. I I would just, actually, I will add something. Most of the the large observational studies looking at the influence of SARS-CoV-2 among rheumatic disease patients, most of them are very mixed or heterogeneous, as John was just saying. And, and actually, most contain very few spondyloarthropathy patients. Most of them are you know, much higher proportions of RA and other, other diseases. So it's nice to have a study just really specific to this group, I think. Yeah, I agree. And it'll be very interesting when other specific group focus with large cohorts and compare the issues you you all brought up. I hope you enjoyed listening to Drs. James Rosenbaum, John Ravel, and Kevin Winthrop giving an overview of their paper entitled The Interplay Between COVID-19 and Spondyloarthritis or Its Treatment, and that you will listen to the complete interview I had with the three authors and read the full-length article. These are both available on our website at www.jroom.org. 
Now we'll move along to the other picks for February 2022 edition. And the first paper is entitled Radiographic Progression of Structural Joint Damage Over Five Years Bersitinib Treatment in Patients with Rheumatoid Arthritis. Results from RA Beyond and is by Van der Heide and colleagues. As you may have surmised from the title, the aim of this paper was to examine the effect of baricitinib on radiographic progression of joint damage over five years in RA patients who had entered one of three trials of baricitinib. In these trials, radiographs were scored at baseline years two, three, four, and five, and the primary outcome was the change from baseline on the van der Heide modified sharp score. Patients may or may not have been on conventional synthetic DMAR depending on the study. 82.6% of the 2,573 patients who were initially randomized entered into this extension trial. And of these, 86.4% or a total of 1,837 outcomes from individual patients were analyzed. In the DMARD naive patients who were treated with baricitinib alone, or those treated with baricitinib plus methotrexate, had less radiographic progression than those initially treated in year one with methotrexate alone and then switched to baricitinib. In years two to five, patients who had had an inadequate response to methotrexate were then treated with baricitinib plus methotrexate had a better radiographic outcome as compared those who were treated with placebo in year one and then had baricitinib added. Similarly, in this group of patients who had had an inadequate response to methotrexate and had either baricitinib or adalimumab added, there was a higher proportion who had no progression as to those initially on placebo. Similarly, in patients who had had an inadequate response to a non-methotrexate, conventional synthetic DMAR, and then treated with baricitinib, had less radiographic progression than those initially treated with placebo. Please read this study in more detail on each of the studies to get a better understanding of radiographic changes over time, to understand the limitations and benefits in, as a result of a five-year study and post hoc analysis of studies, as well as the implications for the use of baricitinib in patients with active RA. Moving on, extraskeletal manifestations in patients with axial spondyloarthritis 
or spa can be associated with increased mortality. In a study entitled Extraskeletal Manifestations in Axial Spondyloarthritis are associated with worse clinical outcomes despite the use of tumor necrosis inhibitor therapy. Vandermeer and colleagues investigated the prevalence and four-year incidence of the following extra-articular manifestations, specifically acute anterior uveitis, inflammatory bowel disease, or IBD, and psoriasis on a cohort of 414 patients with axial spa. The second aim of the study was to examine this association's newly developed extraskeletal manifestations with clinical disease outcome in the same cohort. The presence of the specific extraskeletal manifestation needed to be confirmed by either an ophthalmologist, a gastroenterologist, or dermatologist as appropriate. The investigators found that 31.5% of the 414 patients had a positive history of at least one extraskeletal manifestation, and specifically, 24.9% had acute anterior uveitis, 9.4% IBD, and 4.4% psoriasis at baseline. A history of psoriasis was significantly associated with more radiographic damage and particularly in the cervical spine. 362 patients or 87.4% of the cohort had follow-up data. And of these patients, 15.7% developed an extraskeletal manifestation of which again, acute anterior uveitis was the most common in 13.3% of the patients, of which 3.6 had their first episode during the follow-up. 1.9% developed IBD and 0.8% developed psoriasis. 68.5% of the cohort who initially did not have any extra skeletal manifestations, but then developed one during follow-up, had significantly worse outcomes in some, but not all, of the domain measured, which included both patient-measured outcomes and physician-measured outcomes. The majority of patients had developed, who developed new extraskeletal manifestations were on an anti-TNF agent. Although the four-year incidence of extraskeletal manifestation was relatively low, patients who did develop one had a worse quality of life. In the paper, the authors described the characteristics of a cohort who had initially 
exoskeletal manifestation, those that developed one and those that never developed one over the four-year study. They also give more detail on the individual outcomes amongst the group. The next article examines psoriatic arthritis. It is now recognized that psoriatic arthritis is associated with many comorbid conditions, which could lead to increased mortality. In a paper entitled The Association of Psoriatic Arthritis with All-Cause Mortality and the Leading Causes of Death in Psoriatic Arthritis, Haddad and colleagues used data from a large population-based data set in Israel to examine the, the association between psoriatic arthritis and all-cause mortality. The authors were able to identify 5,275 patients who were followed for a mean of 7.2 years and compared their mortality to over 21,000 controls at a 1 to 4 ratio. They were matched by age, sex, ethnicity, and date of diagnosis on the index case. The proportional mortality rate, or PMR, of the leading causes of death was calculated and compared to the general population. Over the study period, 8.9% of the patients, or 471, died in the PSA group as compared to 7.9% in the control group. The crude hazard ratio for association of PSA and all-cause mortality was 1.16. But in multivariate analysis, it this dropped to 1.02 with confidence interval, which crossed zero. Similarly to the general population, malignancy was the leading cause of death at 26% of the death, followed by ischemic heart disease, which accounted for 15.8% of the death. In accompanying editorial entitled, Is Psoriatic Arthritis Associated with a High Risk of Mortality? Dr. Yingying Liang from the Department of Rheumatology and Immunology at Singapore General Hospital, Singapore, reviews the strengths and limitations of examining the issue of mortality in PSA using large administrative database, such as the one in this study, versus patient registries. In addition, Dr. Liang summarizes the results of previous studies examining mortality in PSA. After reading both the study from Israel and Dr. Liang's editorial, you will have a better understanding of the mortality of PSA and the factors associated with mortality. Joint replacement surgery and re-hospitalization is an important issue. In a paper entitled, Risk of 30-Day Readmission After Knee or Hip Replacement in Rheumatoid Arthritis and Osteoarthritis, 
by non-Medicare and Medicare payer status. Yes, Danielle and colleagues determine the reason for and risk of 30-day hospitalized hospital readmission following hip or knee replacement surgery in either RA or OA patients. They use data from the National Readmission Database over a five-year period. The data included which joint was replaced, the underlying medical diagnosis, and whether the payer was Medicare or not. Over this study, they found that 3.53% of more than 2 million RA or OA patients with either hip or knee replacement surgery required a 30-day rehospitalization. RA patients had a higher 30-day rehospitalization risk than OA patients who under undergoing either knee or hip replacement surgery, regardless of the payer type. Approximately 50% of rehospitalizations were due to infections, wound complications, a cardiac event, or a venous thrombotic event. Comparisons between patients with RA and OA and between the payer type for the reason for hospitalization showed that there was a lower risk for patients with RA as the, compared to OA in non-Medicare patients who had knee replacement surgery. None of the other reasons for rehospitalization differed among the patients, regardless of the joint replaced payer type or underlying disease. In the discussion, the authors examined the strengths and weaknesses of this study, how their study compares to other studies in the literature, and potential reasons to explain the results of their study. Imagens in Rheumatology today describes a three-year-old who presented to Rheumatology Clinic because of findings on a brain MRI, which was performed for another reason. The findings were showed cystic lesions suggestive of joint diffusions at the both TMJs and the atlantoaxial articulations. Examination and laboratory investigation of this patient was, were completely normal. In view of this, norm, of the normal physical exam and laboratory investigations, a diagnosis of cystic ganglionosis was considered and was confirmed on ultrasound of both wrists showing multiple ganglion cysts. Please see the images of this paper, which is entitled Cystic Ganglionosis in a Three-Year-Old Mimicking Juvenile Arthritis, as well as the complete article online at our website at www.jroom.org.
the authors also review cystic ganglionosis. I want to thank you for listening to this podcast. I encourage you to read not only my highlighted articles, but in fact, all the articles in the February 2022 edition of the Journal of Rheumatology, either in the print edition or on our online edition at www.jroom.org. And please watch my interview, not only with the this month's authors, but also other authors from previous months. If you have missed them, they are also available on YouTube for viewing. If you have any comments or questions on these highlighted articles, or in fact, any article in the Journal of Rheumatology, please send them to manuscripts at jroom.com. And please listen to next month's March edition of Editor's Highlights. And please stay healthy during the pandemic.